cliffcentral.com. This is the number one political and news podcast in the country. Ramon? We got you earlier than I thought. Well, I think. Well, I suppose. I suppose. Been six months, I think. Yeah, not too, not too bad. Just over 30, 30 shows. Not bad for a racist, misogynist, um, apartheid apologist. Uh, heteronormative, what, what other patriarchal. What we use to describe our show? I'm sure, I'm sure uh, all you guys listening uh, in Seapoint, you can uh, send us... Uh, Send us your comments. Or adjectives. Yeah, send us your comments. Um, so, good show. Good show on the last one. Um, good feedback as well. And uh, the, uh, as you say, the eternal destruction of the state continues. Yes, uh, at a far slower rate than I want, unfortunately. But uh, long may it continue. <laughs> and just speed it up a bit. Become a bit more radical. I think that's where we disagree. But... Uh, but on the point of disagreement, today we are going to have lots of that, which is nice, because we've uh, we found someone who has, I think, differing views to us, and uh, we're going to have good 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 chats. Indeed, we shall. So, you want to you want to introduce our guest? Uh, should we? So, our guest is Aragorn. We should. It's it's only polite. Right, right, right. So it's Aragorn Elof. Aragorn, you are, sir, a vegan anarchist, and you want science to fall. And I think I probably disagree with you guys on everything. Perfect, perfect. We like it. We like it. That's why we invited you. Well, thank you for coming. You're the first person to, at a drop of a hat, say, yes, of course. I'll come with pleasure. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So, Aragorn, anarchy. What's this, what's this thing about anarchy? Because I thought I was an anarchist, but you said I'm actually not. So let's get down to it. If you had to describe anarchy to an ordinary person, how would you describe it? Okay, so... Let me see if I can do this pretty quickly. But uh, it's actually a very interesting question. Uh, it's more complicated to answer than you might think. So about five or six years ago, a friend and I traveled around the world forming a documentary on anarchism. And we interviewed over 100 people. And the one question we obviously asked every single one of them, define it for us. What is this? What is anarchism? What is anarchy? Who are anarchists? And we got 150 different answers, right? Um Everyone has a different sense. And there's something about the sort of the protean sort of multiplicitous nature of anarchy that kind of warrants that. You know, it's not deeply dogmatic. Uh, people who adhere to anarchism aren't like Marxists who name themselves after famous dead men, like Leninists, Trotskyists, Stalinists, everything else. Um, they tend more to align themselves with practices right. and preferences. You know, you have syndicalists, platformists, anarchist communists, primitivists. Um, but, yeah, I think even though there are a huge number of differing sort of perspectives, uh, there are some sort of common points of overlap that I think we can use to very sort of coherently define what anarchism is. Um, and the one is that anarchism has a negative project, which is the critique of all relations of hierarchy and domination. So not just the state, which is obviously a very central form of hierarchy and domination, but capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy – and nowadays, even sort of environmental exploitation, speciesism. So it's a critique of all relations of hierarchy and domination that we can apply on whatever scale and in whatever contexts we find ourselves. 
Um, and then the positive project would be replacing these relationships of hierarchy and domination with egalitarianism, freedom, equality. So the other interesting thing about anarchism is it has a different conception of freedom and of, of equality to most sort of classic philosophy. So usually these principles in political philosophy are seen as being in tension with each other. You know, you have equality on the one side, you have freedom on the other side, and, you know, equality leads to the gulags and Stalin, yes. freedom leads to free markets and some sort of rules in utopia, right? Yes. Um, anarchists say no. They say, well, these are actually part of one deeper principle of equal liberty. Um, you know, Bakunin said this best back in the sort of 1870s already, that the freedom of each is bound up in the freedom of all, and that providing freedom to those around us nurtures the conditions in which our freedom can grow. So freedom is necessarily a collective pursuit, and the more equal we are, the more free we can be, and the more free we are, the more we can nurture those conditions of equality. So it's a very different conception to classic liberal philosophy of what freedom and equality are and how they work together, right. not in tension, but as collaborative principles. Right. Because, I mean, I'm an anarchist, <clears throat> excuse me, often called anarcho-capitalist, though I do, I do dislike that label. But I, I do think the state is the supreme evil in the world uh, of, of power and domination and coercion. That should be destroyed. I don't see a problem with inequality between free, free in air quotes for your sake, free humans in an anarchic society. I do think different people want different things. They have different choices. And they will try to fulfill those choices in whichever way they want to. Uh, so in my ideal society, I wouldn't want a communal ownership of a nuclear reactor, for example. I wouldn't trust everyone to run a nuclear reactor and make it work properly. Whereas I believe perhaps you, you would argue against that premise. Okay, so, yeah. I mean, anarchism, I mean, anarchy, you know, because anarchism is the practice undertaken by anarchists to reach anarchy. So... For me, anarchy is about an equality of unequals, right? We do all have different interests, but we should have equal opportunity to explore those interests, right? Because again, you know, equality and freedom are bound up in each other. I agree. So, uh, you know, as long as we're providing the conditions of equality, then yeah, we're all going to explore that in very, very different ways and very, very interesting critic ways. Um, one of my favorite books is by an anonymous Swiss anarchist author. Um, who just goes by the name PM. It's a book called Bolo Bolo. And he talks about how in an anarchist society, you would have these things called bolos, which are these different communities. And he spends the whole book talking about how different these communities would look and what different values they'd have. There'd be some that were really high tech and some that were like back to the land and, you know, that have completely different um, sort of internal modes of organization, all of which reflected the principle of equal liberty, but that actualized completely, completely idiosyncratically. So, Again, though, to the extent that these things um, exemplify that principle of equal liberty, I think we can safely call them anarchism, which is why um, I wouldn't really think of sort of free market libertarianism as anarchism simply because it has a different premise um, about what freedom is. So, you know, it takes a more sort of liberal definition of freedom as being negative liberty, right? Mm -hmm. Freedom from. I want freedom from arbitrary constraint. I want freedom from your imposition over me. Um, so already there's assumption of a sort of enlightenment humanist liberal subject. You know, um, it's a very classical idea of subjectivity and the autonomous moral agents and everything else, um, which has been sort of troubled and complexified, especially in the 20th century with what we understand about subjectivity, intersubjectivity, how consciousness works, everything else. 
Um, yeah, so that one-sided view of freedom as being solely negative is is deeply limiting. And the anarchist conception of freedom has a positive side too, which again is the conditions necessary to nurture liberty, to nurture that negative freedom. Um, all right, so just can you give us a bit of a definition more on the equality side? Because you you mentioned the equality of opportunity, and I actually agree with that. Uh, but my problem is 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 when we start talking equality of outcome, and in terms of what you've said, I, I feel like we ultimately all need to be the same. So you, you're saying, and you mentioned a term like um, an anarchic communist, uh, which uh, is to me a uh, complete uh, oxymoron. Well, that's, um, that's a true communist, actually. <laughs> you read Marx. That's, 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 yeah, that's yeah. Communism is the withering way of the state. Well, but they just, they just got lost somewhere in the middle. But it doesn't, it doesn't uh, bring in any of the values of freedom, uh, certainly, or, and, and, and equality there comes in is everyone must be the same. Uh, we must, uh, you can't have poor people and rich people. You just have everyone the same. We all have the same in our bank accounts and we all have our houses, our houses are the same and our possessions are roughly the same and all of these things are the same. So uh, I'm trying to understand the, because uh, cause freedom means, as Ramon was saying, I, I make my choices as I want them to be. So the guy who doesn't want to work and wants to live on the street lives on the street. And the guy who wants to, whatever, sell uh, a, a product and, and make a lot of money off that and, and then buy uh, material wealth, he gets to do that. And and uh, and What's the question? Oh, no, I'm, I, trying I get to, the question. I'm, I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to understand where where actual equality, uh, what where the where the concept, where the equality is uh, there. Uh, if if you if you only into equality of opportunity, or if you want equality of outcome. Okay. Well, we have to think very carefully about what we mean by that. So, first of all, anarchists are against any authoritarian relationship. So nothing can be imposed, right? Um, I don't want to live in a society where anyone tells me what kind of house to live in and what kind of shoes to wear. It's not authoritarian communism. So you're right in saying that um, what Marx wanted when he spoke about communism was a stateless society. He actually wanted an anarchist society. So full communism is anarchism. It's anarchy. Um, people understand communism now as the process that Marx undertook, to, well, that people who followed Marx try to undertake to reach that society and failed dismally because they thought that the capture of the state was the way to remove the state. And obviously the whole 20th century – proved them desperately wrong. Some of the worst crimes against humanity have been committed by authoritarian communist regimes, right? Mm. Mao, Stalin, everyone else. It's mm. a litany of disasters. And from the beginning, the anarchists were the first people to criticize Lenin. They were the first people to be critical of the Russian Revolution and say, this is not going to lead anywhere good. This is deeply authoritarian. You're imposing your will on others. This is not how we reach a free and equal society at all. So, again, if you think about it in those terms... If you're living in a society where everything is completely voluntary, where no one's imposing their will on you, all the decisions we come up with, we're going to make as free equals. No one's going to tell you you have to live in this kind of house. We're going to sit together as a community of people, all of whom have voices as, you know, as free human beings and figure it out in the way that best works for us. What anarchism is, beyond um, a kind of political preference, is it's just a simple heuristic. It's just a simple rule of thumb saying – we think that this kind of society, these kinds of assumptions around liberty and equality mm. would work best to nurture a society that was as fulfilling for all of humanity as it possibly could be without impoverishing any one member of that community. So 
I think that term is also very important because when you think about impoverishment, the tendency is to go, okay, well, bank account, impoverishment, how much money do I have? No, um, and I think that, you know, even psychologists will tell us this these days, um, you know, the accumulation of wealth and resources is not actually that existentially fulfilling, that most people find other things deeply rewarding, you know, sort of life in a enriching community in which they can sort of relate to the other people around them, uh, free time spent exploring themselves and the world around them. You know, there are many more things we find uh, yeah. much more rewarding than, yeah, than like, the accumulation of wealth. But, so, but, but they, uh, you know, freedom, I'm hearing freedom of the group, really. I'm not hearing freedom of the individual. So you said, you, you said, you know, we'll sit as a community and decide what's best for everyone. Uh, screw what's best for everyone. I want what's best for me. Well, so, I, think, I think that's a bit of a straw man. Okay. He said, he said anarchy, if, so if, I don't want a straw man you either. Uh, I'm sitting with two anarchists, yeah. so I'm really outnumbered here. <laughs> um, no, no, what he said was uh, th- there's no uh, imposition of, of force. Upon others, mm. by well, others. well, well, so, the, the, so, the, the problem is peer. The peer group yes. can impose force by being a peer group. But why though? Um, well, because that's how peer pressure works. Uh-huh. Um, so, so, so if 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 you want to have an anarchic society, um, if there's an anarchic society and there's no state and no one tells anyone what to do and no one enforces or coerces anything out of anyone, then the individual is what matters. The individual must be able to completely decide their direction. However, it affects anyone else. Not not in a um, not if they actively, obviously, are are um, uh, hurting any other person. But uh, but they must be able to self-direct. Uh, I'm hearing, and you can. I'm happy for you to tell me that's not what you're saying. But I'm hearing that the group is going to direct. Oh no, no, I'm not saying that at all. Okay. Um, what I'm saying is that both those things are possible at the same time. So. Underlying all this is this recognition that we're social creatures, right? So this is something the anarchist Kropotkin spoke about in his book, Mutual Aid. Um, he recognizes our social being. He says, well, you know, we do best when we work with each other. And, you know, some really good examples of this, um, you know, we can find in what we can call the communism of everyday life. When we have some friends around for dinner and we're all sort of sitting around in the kitchen going, hey, let's make some food. What shall we make? We all collaborate. We come together collectively as a group to decide on what to eat, but no one's voice is marginalized. And there are a whole lot of negotiations and agreements that take place, but that's just part of living in the world surrounded by other human beings. That we're never going to get away from. We're social creatures, and we necessarily live in relation to others. So the anarchist question then becomes, how do we maximize both autonomy and the quality that gives rise to full, enriched feelings of autonomy for everyone within society? So... It's just an assumption. It's an assumption that most people would want to collaborate in these ways and come up as creative, independent individuals, come up with ways to maximize both the individual and the collective good simultaneously. But again, nothing's imposed. So if some people in this community felt, A, that they were loners or B, that they were in a minority that really disagreed with the rest of the community, they'd be free to do their own thing. And in fact, the community would probably try to work out ways of saying, Okay, you guys want to do your own thing. We don't want to stop you. We want to recognize your autonomy. Let's try and make this happen for everyone. I, I think you perfectly described the, the market, Aragorn. If, Not at all. If I'm honest. Um, it's about people coming together. Excuse me, coming together, um, sort of helping each other out. Um, not everything is to be for profit. Um, and if you're unhappy, you are free to leave the community or you are welcome to stay in the community, but essentially you're free to do whatever you wish to do and your happiness is dependent upon your, your, your psyche at the time. Um, I, I think, I don't know where we disagree on anarchy then. 
Okay. So, so, so the, oh, sorry, sorry. I do know. Go for it. Sorry. The difference is I do think people should be able to own private property in an anarchy. And I, I assume you don't. Okay. So we need to distinguish between two types of property. Uh, anarchists are not against personal property. Uh, you know, I want a place to live. I want to make a little house that's mine and looks the way I want it to look. Um, you know, maybe I want a car. Maybe I live in an anarchist society where we have roads and cars. Um, maybe I want a bicycle. I don't want those things communally owned. Like, sure. you know, I, I want to have my house and my bicycle and my car, but I don't think that's private property. Private property has a very specific de- definition. It's something that you can derive value from, from other people, and something that eventually becomes an imposition on other people. So we can see this if we look at history. Um, private property emerged with the enclosure of the commons and the sort of marking off of territory that was once collectively owned or at least collectively lived on and shared, the marking off of that and the sort of dispen- the dispensing of all that to people who already had a lot of political and economic power. So this, this, you know, this idea that um, some people can sort of own huge amounts of land and productive equipment and other people who just want to live on the planet somehow need to defer to the arbitrary authority of those people in order just to eke out a living and not even challenge that fundamental power imbalance is to me bizarre. It's not the best way of fulfilling like the collective human good, and it's not the best way of fulfilling individual human good for the vast majority of the planet. So if we sort of extrapolate further and we say, okay, well, this has just been like a whole litany of historical state projects that have distributed property in this way. Yes. And if we started from a, like a very abstract, clean slate, um, where we said, hey, we have a free market now. There's no state at all. We live in a narco-capitalist land, you know, and I'll tell you why I hate that term just now. Um, I think I think if we mapped that out over a very short period of like a couple of years – you would see the emergence of the exact same structures of hierarchy and domination we have today. So as soon as you have private property, you have means of extracting surplus value out of the people around you. And as soon as you have an economy, you have an unequal distribution of wealth very quickly because that's just the way things work, right? Um, people would want some things more than others. People would be better at some things than others. And inequalities would slowly, well, rapidly in some cases, accrue to smaller and smaller numbers of people. Those people in turn... Well, all the other people in turn would start feeling pretty pissed off about this and go, hang on, this is like becoming less and less fair. We're not doing as well in this free market as you guys are doing in this free market. But, we're, we're not happy with the situation and we want to take stuff back. And those people who are in the minority would then have to develop private security firms and build sort of small neo-feudalist proto-state structures in order to ward off the increasing threat to the growing inequality. So – for me, the free market leads inexorably. Which is why we have a state with a police service and a, a justice system to protect those exact things from happening. Yeah, but those perpetuated equality. No, so so sorry, I, you're saying a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I a lot of what you said there to me comes across as life isn't fair, and um, anarchism or the way you're viewing it, from what I'm hearing, is. Uh, this is a way to make it fair. So to me, I, I can't buy a lot of this because you're saying, well, we'd have this uh, system and then obviously some people would be better than others. Yes, that's 
humanity. That's how our species works. Some people are better at things than other people. Some are better thinkers. Some are, are better at running. Some are better at um, doing certain tasks. Uh, that's uh, that's humanity. The, the belief, and that's why I'm trying to get to the equality point, uh, the belief that we're exactly all the same and thereby we can all function in the same way seems to be uh, Counter science, and we'll get to science just now. But that's it. It, it just we we see examples of this all the time. Okay, so, but but again, though, just to reiterate, I don't think an anarchist world will be a world full of people who are the same in any way. Um, if your measure of difference between people is their amount of access to wealth and power, I think mm. yeah, I, I kind of well, find that well, well, the, you see very the, the, the differences are going to create wealth and power. Yeah. So the, the assumption that only people, if people you see you see this is this is we getting to dangerous um, sort of white privilege decolonization areas here because it's the same assumption that because you're white you if you if you if you're white and you do have money the only reason that that exists is because you're white right that's one for. Uh, um, argument or example, or uh, if, for example, you—that's uh, good enough example. Uh, it's the same. It, it's that that point. So if you go blank slate, uh, the reality is that guys who have a mind for entrepreneurship, and who the guy who figures out that I can um, uh, s- sort of uh, figure out this plot, and I can plant some apples, and then what I can do is I can sell many apples, and um, if I uh, expand and I have scalability and all the rest of it, I can sell a lot of apples. And the other guy doesn't think like that, so he doesn't get the same. And what ends up happening is guy A, who figured out the the, pro- the, the sort of business project, is going to end up with wealth. It's not to do with any kind of unfair advantage other than perhaps a biological advantage and that he has a certain way of thinking. Um, and Gabi is not going to have that advantage. And, and, and I don't understand how even in an anarchy without a state, that ultimately doesn't end up happening. Oh, no, I, I hear you. I mean, you know, it's a way of summarizing your point is mm. Elon Musk deserves everything he has, right? You know, so – what, we, what we're talking about, for me, but yeah, yeah, but, <laughs> but, but, we, but we're talking about merit, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. and the anarchist point here. So I must be really, really clear about this. Mm. Anarchists are not moralists. Mm. I couldn't give a fuck about fair or unfair, okay. right? right? I don't think there's some objective moral measure in the universe of what constitutes fairness or unfairness. Mm. I do, however, recognize that things can work for the benefit of people or against the benefit of people, and that's obvious to me. I can go visit friends in Kailicha and I can see very quickly and objectively that shit is not benefiting the vast majority of people who live there as much as it's benefiting the people who live in Constantia, right? So that's just simple sort of descriptive claims. It doesn't re- rely on any sort of ethical or moral framework. Yeah. And I think anarchy is the same. It relies on a sort of descriptive or an axiological framework. It's not saying, you know, we have some sort of um, conservative moral code where we want to make everyone the same as each other because otherwise it's just not fair. So when we think about fairness, though, or when we think about what we valorize in society, first of all, why do we recognize the kinds of skills or the kinds of betters and worses that we recognize? These things are very contingent upon the kind of society we already live in, right? We recognize things that contribute in certain ways to human projects that are all bound up in sort of modernity and capitalism, in societies that live under state rule, Um why don't we recognize a wider set of capacities? You know, 
Why do artists and poets often live and die in poverty? Because their skills are not socially acknowledged in the same way that an entrepreneur's skills are acknowledged. This is arbitrary to me, and I don't think it contributes to the greater sort of social and individual good in any particular way. So anarchism would be a kind of society in which we say, well, let's recognize everyone's capacities. Let's, let's recognize that everyone contributes in all sorts of different ways to society. A really, really beautiful example of this, one of the most powerful, it's a female um, autonomous Marxist author, Silvia Federici, and she discusses what she calls immaterial labor. Um, sorry, not immaterial labor, reproductive labor. And she says, well, you know, um, within capitalist society, the role of within patriarchal households, the role of woman in creating the conditions in which men can work and children can learn and the whole sort of like flow of capital can continue is completely unacknowledged. You know, and, and she was part of a movement in the seventies which called for wages for housework. So yeah. that stay at home stay at home wives could be recognized as contributing to the reproduction mm. capitalist society. So and one of the most status countries in the world, Australia, actually pays that. Okay. If what no, I wasn't aware of that. But I mean <laughs> yeah. so obviously obviously my, my arguments are a lot more sort of far reaching than that. I don't want wages for anything. I don't want wages mm. to exist, right? All I'm saying is that um you know, and all anarchists are saying is that you know, in a, in a thriving, rich, diverse, creative society that recognized everyone's capacities. Um, I think, first of all, we wouldn't limit those capacities to what we understand as being socially valuable in a very specific kind of capitalist, modernist society. But um, it also doesn't follow that because you recognize that people contribute wonderful things to society in all their diverse ways, that you should reward that with power. So why why should acknowledgement of contribution to the social good necessitate giving someone more than someone else because very quickly that's going to lead to the very imbalances that decrease the social good yeah so so i mean entrepreneurs aren't special right or uh accountants aren't special they they contribute to society and uh okay legal framework today but they're not more special than a poet because they contribute in different ways to to their society's well-being yeah they're not they're not more special than a coltan but you're arguing against the free market because 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 you are because if the free market is interested in the poet then the poet will get his his, what is what he's worth but you're assuming the free market's rational and and it's not and I well, that. well, the the free market is 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 rational to the extent of whoever's involved in it and whoever's partaking in it. Listen, if the free market was rational, Justin Bieber wouldn't be alive or a thing. <laughs> neither would political parties. Neither would a lot of things. People aren't rational. We're not rationalists. Mm. Yeah, meh, we can make that argument. I, I, it, it just, it's just that the people. Rational, irrational, buy into what, and when I say buy, I use that term loosely, not necessarily with money, and in, in certainly in the capitalist societies that we live the in, buy. But, but they they buy what they like. They buy into what they like. Yeah, but that's you, not going to change yeah, because but, you. But with, you, when you have a billion dollar budget to market to someone and you use psychology and psychotherapy and all sorts of things, do they really buy what they want? Okay, but but it, it's interesting because a lot of these arguments are based in you know it's 2016, um, and the reality. Is a lot of a lot of these systems have come out through centuries and millennia now of humans on Earth testing what works, what people like, what people don't like. There was no marketing machine for Mozart, and he was a successful artist in his time. And Bach as well, uh, sure. 
Um, and there were guys who weren't successful at their time who subsequently were successful and there was no marketing machine there, but it just because people's tastes might have changed and then they liked that particular music or art or whatever. Um, in, in fact, uh, we probably could have had the argument, uh, when those guys were around that it's terribly unfair that these guys who, uh, who, uh, you know, uh, produce music are, are so well looked after and they get opera houses built for them. But, uh, the guy who, who is, uh, doing, I don't know, whatever jobs were jobs back then, you know, t- putting shoes on the horses, which is very important. Uh, th- he's just a lowly, uh, nothing. So, you know, the, the, the reality is that these things change based on the free market, what the market wants, what yeah. the market likes. But I think what Aragorn's point is that the, the notion that Mozart is more important than a farrier is was is, is like a, a construct of sorts and he's against that construct mm-hmm. they're both equally valuable to society now, well, what i'm saying is what are the consequences of those two different ways of thinking about society mm. so on the one hand what are the consequences of saying let this very arbitrary mechanism called the market, which I think is kind of a Rube Goldberg, Goldberg machine. Do you guys know what that is? No, I don't. No. Rube Goldberg was this guy. He, it, it's like this kind of quirky inventor, and he made all these very complex contraptions that did simple things. You know, like the game Mousetrap. Yeah. We have to build all this stuff together, and then you put the ball in one end and knock something down at the other end after going through all these hoops and circles and that whatever else. That seemed unnecessary, yeah. So, I mean, for me… Any formalized economic framework is like this. The free market is essentially a very sort of indirect and complicated way of people just saying, hey, let's just figure out what we want to do together. Um, so on the one hand, if we look at things that way and we say this is the way in which we're going to try to decide what's valuable, what are the consequences of that? What are the emergent properties of that kind of system? And that's what I was speaking to earlier, saying, well, it's going to result in the emergence of inequality very quickly. Mm. On the other hand, we just acknowledge that everyone contributes in often very strange and intangible ways that often we can only recognize after the fact, like with dead artists that become really popular suddenly because we see that they captured their zeitgeist, that we can only see in retrospect clearly. Um, if we think about things in that way and we don't mm. valorize certain achievements through arbitrary contingent measures by the distribution of power, what are the consequences of that? And the consequences of that, I think, are a much more sort of rich and dynamic and diverse and thriving society in which everyone's capacity for autonomy is enhanced and enriched by the fact that the conditions of equality around them mm. provide the sort of rich soil that nurtures that autonomy. I, I think where where I uh, where I differ on that is that uh, perhaps in, in, in your version of, of a society, uh, everyone feels a lot better about themselves. Uh, and uh, kumbaya, you know, that type of thing, uh, not to be too flippant, apologies. Um, but it, it, it's a nice feeling society, perhaps. And if we can get that, it sounds like quite an ideal as well. Um, and in the society that we currently have, which I acknowledge there are problems, but our society – uh, prioritizes all those things prioritize progress what i consider progress and where we've got into right now uh, we pay the guy who can build an iphone uh we value that the guy who can not the guy who can build the iphone because he's a 13 year old child in a chinese factory but we value the guy who can invent the iphone um, and who can continue upgrading it we value the guy who can land a probe on mars um, and i believe that that is overall the right thing to do because we've gotten to the point now where we are by doing that. Uh, I don't think that by uh, trying to value everyone equally uh, and their contribution, because I, I don't think contributions are equal, um, we, we get to, to, to the same level of progress. Yeah, but I think, I think the point is yeah. that you don't think contributions are 
are equal. I don't either. But what happens if it's arbitrary, arbitrary state power telling you that contributions aren't equal? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, look, I, why I, do you I, give power to I, those I, who I, think I, the same as you? You know, you know, I, I buy the I buy the argument of de-escalating the state, but I uh, I think I think where we we are not disagreeing necessarily on on the problems with with the state. We're more disagreeing with the fundamentals of of anarchic society. Aragon, is that fair enough, uh, Steel Manning? Um, yeah, that uh, <laughs> from straw man to steel man. So, I mean, <laughs> just 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 one thing quickly. This idea of progress, um, you know, I don't subscribe it's, to it's any bullshit. I don't subscribe to any kind of historical determinism. I don't think there's a single human teleological drive to reach the stars, whatever Elon Musk might say. Um, and I think a lot of the time, what we're doing is we're making post hoc post hoc justifications for arbitrary changes in society, changes that have led us in certain complex directions and not in others. So I think at this point in society, depending on decisions, arbitrary decisions that we made by virtue of markets or states or collective human endeavor over the past couple of thousand years, there could be millions of different worlds we currently live in now with very different sort of technological distributions and very different social arrangements, very different forms of economic relations. Um, to say that where we are now somehow is represents some single drive towards progress, you know, it, it's the romance of sort of a classical enlightenment humanism, but it just seems so arbitrary these days. You know, the things that we focus our attention on achieving, the things we dismiss at the same time, there's so many different ways we could live and be. And yeah, yeah. I don't think we can valorize anything that happens in society as it currently stands by saying, well, that represents progress. No, it represents something people have decided to do based on certain conditions that might be actually really suboptimal. Ah, how's that? Yeah, pro progress is a myth. A myth, sorry. No, I fully agree with that, with that sentiment. So now going back to, oops, excuse me. Uh, so going back, so we spent a long time on bloody anarchism, much longer than I expected. But now let, let's use those principles for for, for Bloody anarchism is a good way to put it, because it's probably the only way we'll achieve it. <laughs> Well, no, no, no. Anarchists who want more state funding are not fucking anarchists. I'm sorry. No, no. I'm saying. just saying to bring down governments ultimately. As, as well, if you think away. it'll be happen without death, uh, I've got gonna, news for no, you. No, no, no. You, you, you think too short term. First, we're going to have uh, cultural enclaves. Then there's going to be the union buildings and no one's going to give a shit who's in it because they won't have any power. And then borders and states will just wither away. Like monarchies, like empires. It's, it's a nice place to, to live Nevertheless, in your mind, but carry so, on. <laughs> let, let, let's go to contemporary South Africa now. Uh, apparently, Feed Must Fall is anarchic. Um, I, I see why in some instances. But you seem to be broadly in favor of, of Feed Must Fall. And I'm broadly in favor of Feed Must Fall, but I think for a different reason entirely. So if you had to give a simple explanation as to why Feed Must Fall is maybe not moral, but a good thing, why would that be? Okay, so, yeah, first of all, obviously the mainstream media loves describing stuff as anarchic, using yeah, it in a pejorative me. sense, which has nothing to do with the political sense, of right? Not. Yeah, Even though Proudhon co-opted the term as a sort of, you know, as a playful act, it was already being used as a pejorative term when he became the first person to describe himself as an anarchist. Right. But, you know, nowadays it has a strong political history, and we understand over the last 170 years what anarchism really is politically. So, business falls not anarchic in any way, um, although there are some actual anarchists who participate in it, um, which is hopefully they've had some influence, although not enough because it's kind of become deeply authoritarian in many ways. But, yeah, I'm completely in support of it because 
you know, I think it's vital to open up spaces of learning. And I think that the neoliberalization of universities is something we're seeing around the globe and it's having really, really detrimental effects. And uh, sorry, everyone, if I may just ask, uh, neoliberalization, mm-hmm. what do you mean by that term? It's a term bandied around often and not many people can actually describe or define it. Okay. So please. Okay. So, so neoliberal. So, you know, in short, and I know sort of within the sort of free market and the libertarian right, there's this idea that neoliberal is not a real term. But I mean, very simply, it's, it's become a socially accepted term, which means it has validity. Um, and it's been used since around the 80s to describe the sort of post-Thatcher-Reagan era where we saw the sort of whittling away of social services, the privatization of even more parts of the social world, um, and this sort of deployment of this notion of subjectivity where everyone is somehow an entrepreneur of this, themselves, you know, where we all sort of these um, temporarily embarrassed millionaires lifting ourselves out of poverty by our own bootstraps. Mm. Um, all this stuff, you know, the way we have to sort of market ourselves and not sell ourselves short and not buy into the wrong things and have our personal brands and all oh, this, right. all this okay. is part of the subjectivity that comes along with neoliberalism. So neoliberalism is a sort of shift in the sort of axioms that regulate market society. Okay. Um, away from any interventionism and towards complete privatization. So in the context of universities, you know, this is sort of goes right through to like how things are funded. So for instance, in science departments, what kind of research is funded? What are the bottom lines of that research? Um, in the humanities, what does research look like in a privatized university or in a neoliberalized university? Well, it has to be quantifiable. So suddenly the kinds of research that are valorized become very different and they give us very different understandings of the human subjects that they're exploring. Um, you know, uh, People get into huge amounts of debt within neoliberalized universities. If you look at the U.S. student debt crisis, it's shaping uh, up to be bigger than the housing bubble crisis in the I think U.S. It's at one point four trillion dollars now, something to that effect. Yeah. So, so all, all right. these things. So, so, is neoliberalism sorry for or against privatization? For. So, if it's for privatization, why? How could Feasmus Four be called a neoliberal if it wants the state to fund no, no, education? No, no, no. Sorry. So the, the universities. universities are, the Feasmus Four. is against the neoliberalization of the university as one of. Oh, it's one of its okay, sort of so they're, of struggle, they're against right? neoliberalization. But obviously, the but, but neoliberalization is essentially, as I get it, being used as a almost pejorative term uh, to describe the way certain structures have moved. It, it's the expansion of the market into all facets of life, and the slow whittling away of any welfare state or any means of community support whatsoever. Um, Which you're against. Obviously. I think I'm a but, neoliberalist. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so if we look at the axes of struggle in Feasmus Fall, right, there's a challenge to the structural racism of those institutions, which, I mean, I know so many people who have gone through those universities and it's just, it's all around you every day, right? If I lived in Nazi Germany um, and I was like, you know, narrowly escaped with my life and then 20 years later I went to university in Germany, there was a statue of Hitler at the entrance. I'd, I'd be like, wow, this place has a lot of transformation. Yeah, still if, to if, you, right. if you escaped Nazi Germany, you see, that's the problem. None of those kids escaped roads. None of those kids suffered from roads directly. There's no, it's the sins of the fathers. You're not suffering. Oh, oh no, sorry. That's not the point I was trying to make. Oh, okay. So, um, what I was trying to say was maybe I articulated it badly. Um, the fact that you can go to university in 2016 that still valorizes a colonialist minority that oppressed the majority of this country is striking. It, it, it reflects the lack of transformation and the lack of acknowledgement by those university structures that 
the people participating in them nowadays come from those previously colonized populations and that learning needs to expand to incorporate all the stuff that forms okay, part wait, wait. of it. Sorry. Okay. So I just want to, to, to succinctly conclude what you're trying to say. Yeah. So, yeah so I'm saying so, it badly. Uh, no, no, no. And, I, I, and so. I don't, no, I think I get it. So basically you're saying that, okay. So the universities were, are drenched in colonial power, right? They were created by colonialists at the time. We, we acknowledge that. The statues are still up there. The, the, the buildings are still called after these colonial, uh, people that existed at the time. And even the method of teaching, you would argue, is a type of foreign construct to how, uh, things are taught in Africa. Even the type of subjects, you would argue. Uh, is that not, what you're trying to say? Not, not really. Not okay, really. So, so, um, so maybe another way of looking at this is saying that, well, we live in a highly structurally unequal society. Um, the ways in which it's structurally unequal map very closely to how it was structurally unequal during apartheid, even though it isn't legitimized by law anymore. And in fact, the constitution runs counter to those forms of structural inequality. They're still reflected in everyday society. Right. So, you know, I grew up in Joburg, um, feeling kind of blind to all this stuff. And, and, you know, I was aware of the discourses being like really political my whole life, probably. But it's only when I went down to Cape Town five or six years ago and lived there that I really understood what people meant when they said structural inequality and structural racism because it was just so stark. It was so starkly apparent in the geographies of the city, in how transport worked, in how pedagogy unfolded, in every aspect of social life. It was just so striking to me. So there's something real that the students are pointing to when they say, you know, the universities exemplify structural racism in our society. And they need to be challenged. Not what is taught necessarily, but the way it's taught needs to be challenged. Okay. Um, what is valorized? What is centralized? What forms of experience are centralized in how teaching happens and in how all the sort of um, practices and structures of the university unfold? Are you not afraid you're being a bit too charitable to Fees Must Fall in a way? Because one thing about about the the communications that come from fees must fall official communications uh, it's it's extremely vague in what they want um the size must fall video was salad. was maybe the first honest um outburst from fees must fall in this way i mean i have seen other communications don't get me wrong but it's it seems extremely critical theorist in a way um so it's actually very difficult to find out what they actually do want. You can use the word decolonization, but it means absolutely nothing. Uh, yes, people do say, go Google it. Yeah, cool. But what do you mean by it? If you can't explain something in three sentences, you don't understand okay, it. Okay, I can try. <laughs> right. So um, there's a couple of can, questions. Can I, can I, sure. Can I, oh, okay. All right. Go with the questions. I've got something else I wanted to ask you, right. but, but, but sorry, I don't want to. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I'm so, trying to keep track of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so it's about being charitable to Fees Must Fall, yeah. which maybe you are doing. Uh, what exactly do they want and why decolonization? Or, or maybe why not decolonization is a thing. Okay. So, um, you know, you say when we look at the official documents, but there is a huge bunch of documentation and discourse that's emerged from Fees Must Fall. Um, they've even developed economic plans to achieve free education that they've presented to government that government has acknowledged and said, wow, these guys are actually saying stuff that's pretty sophisticated and that, you know, they're actually, they're actually making proposals here that we could look at meaningfully. Oh, great. So the government's not very sophisticated. Um, so I mean, we also, respect, we must also yeah. remember that we're talking about people at tertiary institutions, a lot of whom are studying at postgrad and doctoral level. And 
who look at the stuff every day, who look at the data every day, who look at the social studies every day. And they're probably thinking more critically about the stuff than a lot of people commenting on the, like, you know, from afar, because sure. this is their sort of, um, their academic life and soon to be their professional life. So, um, well, it's, the social, seen, it's only the social sciences that would be looking theoretically at Or economic stuff. sciences, and, which are uh, actually social sciences, but we won't go into that. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. And we can talk about the data because I'm yet to see any good I mean, hard data. I mean, I think, yeah, but let me, dismissing them as, as stupid is wrong, right? And we're not doing that in the slightest. I just think they're bad at articulating what they Oh, I don't, I don't think proposing. so. I think it depends where we look. So, um, you know, so I think I have like a weird view into this because, first of all, I know a lot of people who are involved in student struggle at the different universities, both in faculty and as students. So I'm getting huge amounts of sort of reports so you, fed at me all the time from people. We don't have that information. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty in, yeah, I'm entrenched from afar kind of thing, sure. right? Um, actually, wish I was closer to the ground in this. Um, I also – so – I was part of a collective that ran an anarchist space in Cape Town, a, an info shop, which is a sort of anarchist social center with literature, um, vegan food and drinks, um, meeting space for radical groups. We ran that for a couple of years. And a lot of people who sort of involved in Fees Fall now um, and were involved in Rosemus Fall, well, maybe not a lot, but like quite a few of the sort of mobilizers within those movements, um, they spent a lot of time in that space. And I got to overhear and engage a lot and – really see the sort of nuance and sophistication of the analyses and the critiques. So, for instance, when people talk about decolonization within those movements, they, they do know what they're talking about. It has a hugely cogent analysis. Um, for me, very simply, it's about sort of um, – there was this really beautiful, beautiful placard that someone held up at um, one of the early Rhodes Must Fall protests. Um, I think it was like when the day where they removed the statue. Yeah. And someone was holding up this placard that said, next, the invisible statues. Um, decolonization for me is about acknowledging the existence of those ex- invisible statues, i.e. the forms of structural hierarchy and domination, the forms of sort of structural racism and what we can call white supremacy that continue to permeate social life in South Africa. And after we point those out, after we sort of articulate that and say, hey, hang on, this stuff is real. The stuff really is influencing how we live our lives here. It's really contributing to inequality all around us. Then working to eradicate it in various mm. ways, right? Through pedagogical projects, through direct challenges of various types, through whatever it is, you know, revolutionary action, appeals to governments, all these different ways in which we can say, hey, how do we make this country more representative of the interests of all its inhabitants? And how do we transform it so that it doesn't just reproduce these normative structures this idea that at the invisible center of all life there is the heterosexual white able-bodied adult male who isn't an arbitrary contingent identity but the center of all identity right the perfect enlightenment liberal humanist subject decolonization is about pointing at that that center and saying hang on this has been placed in the center this is the big statue at the center but it's completely arbitrary and we need a multiplicity of statues not just this one sort of core measure of, of worth. Okay. So that all sounds great. Um, and my problem with it is that none of it exists. Okay. In my opinion. So, um, the central white guy that everyone looks up to, uh, there's only one and his name's Jesus and the decolonizers are using churches He's not to, white. to, well, 
he's represented as that. So let's not get beside the point. Okay. <laughs> uh, they're using churches to, to have their meetings. So frankly, they're hypocritical. Point number one. Point number two is we, we, we're making this thing about how institutionalized these universities are, their race and whatever. Now, apartheid was a social engineering system. It was a huge cock up. Um, we know this. This is, uh, accepted fact. Um, and there are problems with that social engineering, which we are trying to fix. 50 years and not 400, as the decolonizers would have us believe, uh, is going to take a very long time to correct. But we are in the process of correcting. I'm trying to understand how a university is institutionally racist if the chancellor is black, the vice chancellor is black, the SRC president is black, the 70% of the student body is black. Um, I, I'm trying to understand how um, it's 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 such a problem. And, and the only thing I see that, that remains that is, uh, not African, so to speak, or majoritarily African is the, the, the course sort of curricula, uh, which are taught in, in, in the various subjects. And even those, uh, ag- many, many of those acknowledge, um, the, the African stance. The, the problem is, is that potentially even where they have an argument, uh, for, you know, an African view on things, they go too far. So they swing the pendulum as science must fall girl did, um, or whatever we're calling her. Um, they swing the pendulum too far and they go, well, we need to wipe the slate because science is a Western, uh, concept of modernity and, we need to start again from the African view. I just, the data doesn't equal the continual idea of we're all victims constantly. Okay. So, so hang on. I don't, I don't think, um, I, th- I think we look at it in the context of victimization. We may be taking it from the wrong angle and I can speak to that quickly, mm. but I just wanted to really, really importantly say that when we, the thing you said about 50 versus 400 years, I know what your young friend Rubik landed here. <laughs> Mm, it wasn't 50 years uh, do you ago, know what so. your, your Shaka Zulu came and kicked uh, all the uh, Khoisan off their land? Oh, no, but, but look, whatever, see, the, whatever, the whatever internecine, are equal. So hang on, hang on. Whatever, yeah. inter, whatever internecine yeah. struggles happened within Southern Africa mm. before the advent of colonialism doesn't mean that colonialism didn't happen. No, There's it been a struggle throughout human history, but colonialism was a very specific type of imposition that alienated people from their land from their communities, from each other, and from themselves. And that's been going on for at least 400 years and longer in other parts of the world. And everywhere in the world, um, in South America, in North America, people are still dealing, in Australia, people are still dealing with the existential impact of these hundreds of years of colonialism. And part of that existential impact is recognizing that while now on paper, through electoral democracies and everything else, they have abstract equality, that in fact, within the real world, they find themselves all the norms of colonialism, all the assumptions about identity, all the normative practices that go along with able-bodied heterosexual male whiteness are still taken for granted to be the invisible center by virtue of which, you know, everything is deemed of inferior worth to the extent that it doesn't match up with that. So, Sorry, if I may just interject, is it, is it not just a question that the dominant culture will win anyway? We, we can question it and, and we can, we can try fix that dominant culture, but it won. So let's see what we can do with it. Is that not an adequate, not defense? Do we want to live in a world like that though, where the dominant culture know. wins, where the bigger guy stabs the smaller guy and like steals his cell phone? Why? I don't want to live in that kind of world. And I don't think that world would benefit anyone. It's just, that's, that's no, the tooth and claw no, race. No, to no the one's bottom. got a problem with that world when it's, uh, 
you know, Nigeria, which doesn't have the white heteronormative, whatever terms we're using. Um, you know, that's not the, the norm, the cultural norm in Nigeria. Uh, the cultural norm in Thailand is not that. The cultural norm in China is not that. Uh, mm. So, um, you, you know, the, the, the problem is, is once again, I'm asking for proof, evidence that in the South African context, the norm is the white, able-bodied, uh-huh. okay. hetero, so let me give you, let me give you a good example. Guy. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's also an analogy, mm. but I think it's a beautiful example. So Zulaika Patel, the secondary student with the Afro, um, who was told by her high school that she had to wear her hair in a style that was recommended in the school guidelines. If you look at those school guidelines, it's an assumption that people have white person's hair, right? Um, if you look at a whole lot of the school guidelines, um, there are other examples as well besides Zulaika Patel. Um, Look, there was I, oh, hang on, hang on. Yeah. There, there was a guy who went to school wearing red and white beads because he was mourning the death of his grandmother because in his culture that's what you do when you mourn the death of your grandmother. The teacher cut the beads off of him and threw them away because doesn't abide by the school regulations of how people must dress appropriately at school. Um, people have had their headscarves taken off of them because, well, you know, that's not part of like the norms and practices of the school. People can have earrings because, you know, in white culture, earrings are okay for female children to have. But if you have a nose ring as part of your culture, that's not accepted in school guidelines. Of course, legally, when you actually look at sort of the national guidelines on this, those things are legitimate and people are allowed to wear those sort of cultural adornments and stuff. But the way that that it actually unfolds in all the schools around the country is that people – it's not – you know, that that those things aren't reflected. People still behave as though the norms of whiteness are still dominant. So – as with secondary schools, so with universities, and in a lot more sort of subtle and insidious ways, via the pedagogical process, via how the structures and institutions of the school are set up to benefit certain types of people. Um, but, I mean, do you think that's intentional, or are people just dumb or dickish? Well. It could be both, right? If I mean, or, I don't think white. there's a bunch of people conspiring undercover right. of night saying, ha ha, okay. let's perpetuate white supremacy, yes. you know, and they're all wearing the pointy white hats. Let's fucking hope not. Apparently in some um, West there is. No, I'm yeah, that's, that's another problem. We'll need to deal with that one. But um, no, I, I think even if it's just happening as, you know, a set of natural invisible assumptions, that's why, that's why yes. they say, hey, the invisible statues, right? Sure. It's the things we've taken for granted that we're not acknowledging. You know, we're not recognizing that the way our identities have been manufactured as white middle class South Africans um, cause us to not recognize difference in identity, the fact that um, our norms and values benefit us much more than they benefit other people. So even if it is natural, even if it's just an emergent property of the history of the horrible legacy of colonialism, yeah. that doesn't mean it shouldn't be challenged and eradicated. Oh, sure. And that's what the decolonization project is. And that's what the people at the university is drawing attention to. And sometimes they're drawing attention to them in ways that don't come out well. So the three-minute Science Must Fall video, part of a two-hour conversation in which a lot of nuanced perspectives were discussed around science – and one young person tried to articulate an idea around epistemology that she'd obviously read somewhere or heard from someone else yes. and try to say it as best she could. It came out wrong. Things often come out wrong in those kind of contexts. Sure. I, mean, I might have said something silly just now, and who knows? I you mean, know? we agree that video was a bit – yeah. it was a poor attempt. Well, the two hours isn't much better from my perspective. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, I'm, but I've also – I mean, I know guys who are part of Fees Must Fall who are in philosophy of science, and they say – Incredibly sophisticated things around epistemology. So, can you introduce him to us? We would love to have him on the yeah, show. Yeah, sure, sure. Awesome. I mean, 
I'm thinking people in Cape Town, but we can definitely... We, we can probably talk an hour on or more on this. I, I want to just quickly get on to veganism. Uh, you mentioned... <laughs> yeah, please, we have three minutes. Um, minutes. Um, I know it's quick, it's quick. You mentioned speciesism. Um, so, obviously, I, I take it you are a vegan because you, you don't want to harm any other species. You don't think humans are better than animals. Um, and am I right? Sorry yep. on that. Okay, cool. Um, can I just ask uh, then your, your view on the science that says uh, vegetables feel pain? So, okay. Oh dear! That, that <laughs> Come is, now, this is trolling. That, that is that is just pure trolling. So, <laughs> like, I, I, but I have some good reverse trolling sorry, for that, Aragorn. which is even if let, let him reverse even troll. if plants felt as much pain as animals, even if plants were as sentient as animals, we would still eat the plants because. When we eat animals, we process more plants through the animals. More plants suffer by being fed to the animals we eat than if we eat the plants directly. Okay. All right. That's a fair argument. It's a fair argument. A little theory I have is that in a few decades or a few centuries, factory farming would be seen in the same light as the Holocaust. Absolutely. Do you think that's the correct way? Yeah. Do you think that's correct? Yeah. yeah I think if we take the Holocaust as a, a sort of common descriptor, not yes. as in the Shoah. Yes. Um, I think there are all sorts of exceptional events in history that we shouldn't be too quick to correlate to other events. But the idea sure. of a Holocaust, which, you know, people also speak about in the context of um, the indigenous American Holocaust and stuff like that, definitely there is an animal Holocaust going on. And I think in retrospect, hopefully soon from now, we're going to recognize that, you know, the unnecessary and cruel exploitation of other animals for arbitrary dietary whims and all sorts of other arbitrary whims. It was just completely uh, unjustifiable. Only, my, that's, why, that's why we need capitalism to make lab, uh, lab-grown meat. Yeah, that is why we need capitalism. But, but uh, my only argument yeah. would be it's not unnecessary. Anarchists can make lab-grown we, meat we, we got, we know science too. We got where we needed to be because we've had to eat those animals. Not, it's not unnecessary. You know, no, we, we, did, no, we didn't. We, we, well, okay, it's a separate scientific argument. We unfortunately have run out of time. Uh, Aragorn, is uh, there anywhere we can find you? Do you want to be found on social media? Um, well, you could just like check out my Facebook profile and that has links to like other stuff I get involved in. Um, if you want to see more about the documentary I'm involved in, which we're still busy editing, it's anarchismdocumentary.net. Awesome. The collective I'm part of is at bolobolo.co.za. That's B-O-L-O. So bolobolo.co.za. And yeah, it's a bunch of other projects I'm involved in. They're all on my Facebook. Well, I mean, I had, I think this was a fantastic conversation. I really wanted to have you back maybe for two hours next time. Oh my God. <laughs> if you, if you're willing, maybe we'll leave Wit out of here because he just wants to fight with everyone. As long as I get two bottles of water next right. time. Yeah. I just, uh, you can send your comments about, uh, Ramon's suggestion to leave me out of it. Uh, I think two anarchists for two hours might just sink the podcast forever. Uh, we are on Twitter at renegade underscore reports. You can find us on Facebook, renegade reports. Please like us on uh, on uh, iTunes. And, and if you want to find us on iTunes, just go to charts and look at the top. It's <laughs> right there. <laughs> That's some trolling right there. Uh, please uh, leave a review for us. Uh, it really does help. And uh, tell your friends. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Central.com